welcome to episode 1318 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. I have good news for you. Potentially good news. Your eighth round draft pick in the minor league freight and draft, Reimer Liriano has agreed to terms. This is a minor league contract, but he has at least signed somewhere, and he has signed with the Mets, whose current center fielder is Juan Lagares. They have Rajay Davis around as a backup. I don't know if Reimer Liriano is a real center fielder at this point. He's played a lot of all outfield positions down in the minors, but he is still 27 years old, and he hit fairly well last year in AAA, so you might have a, you might have some sort of opportunity there if, if say, Juan Ligaris gets injured and the Mets decide they don't want to pay for someone better than Ramaliriano. <laughs> he's their man. Yeah, that would not shock me. Yeah, that's one of the the nice after effects of the minor league free agent draft. It's fun when we do it, but then it's fun throughout the year because you see these names that normally would mean almost nothing to you. Right now on MLB Trade Rumors, there's the minor MLB transactions post, and you just scan past these names. Uh, Haven't seen this guy in a while. Don't know this guy. Don't know where this guy will be. But because we have this connection, we have this stake now in Reimer Liriano and Jairo Diaz and all of these guys who otherwise we would be paying no attention to it's just this nice little jolt oh that guy i have an interest in that guy's success we talked the other day about the possibility of terrence gore getting 100 stolen base opportunities and stealing <laughs> 70 bases but not batting would you be infuriated by that or would you just accept that you get no credit because you knew the rules going into this <laughs> i know i was gonna say i should have stipulated that we're counting <laughs> plate appearances and batters faced and stolen base opportunities or <laughs> pinch run appearances that would that would be nice yeah that would be pretty frustrating i think if gore were on the roster the entire year and got like three plate appearances or something but but it would be worth it because it would be fun to have Terrence score in the big league stealing lots of bases all year so that's some consolation I do notice looking at this list we drafted 11 players and yeah Ryan Lamar for you is a position player Mason Williams Ramon Liriano uh, Kelby Tomlinson Devin Marrero Terrence Gore I don't know I don't remember who Kieran Lovegrove is, and I don't remember who pitcher. I don't remember who and John Birdie's a pitcher. Okay, well, still John we're Birdie's not a pitcher, not a pitcher. Okay, so that's interesting. Yeah. So you went with I think by my count that would be seven position players and four pitchers. And mm-hmm. looking at my own selections, I took nine pitchers. I think Josh Lucas is a pitcher, right? I don't even remember the people I drafted, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I took nine pitchers and two position players, and I went with pitchers. Uh, I intentionally prioritize pitchers because I thought that stuff will just play up and and it's easier for a pitcher to just emerge or or become needed out of desperation because pitchers get hurt. And I I figure (laughs) position players are just more likely to stay in the minors if they're already in the minors. So was that anything you gave thought to or was that just an unintentional accident? No, it was not. I mean, if uh, if this were an amateur draft or some other type of draft, I probably would lean toward position players just because they tend to be more reliable long term. But for this, that was not my strategy. I would be curious if anyone has some time to waste and wants to waste it on this, what the positional breakdown of our minor league draft picks in the past have been. Just because I'm guessing that it's just a lot of like backup catchers and utility guys and left-handed relievers and probably, you know, short stops, maybe guys who can play short, but also other positions, those guys that you think are just more likely to stick on a major league roster at some point. Well, you got anything you want to say about David Robertson? (laughs) Yeah, I think we should talk briefly about that. So David Robertson representing himself on the free agent market this year, signed with the Philadelphia Phillies for, what, two years, $23 David Robertson has been just one of my favorite levers for a while now. And I think he's probably underrated just because he hasn't really gotten that many saves. I mean, he was a closer for uh, three years or three years and part of another year. But he is just really one of the top relievers in baseball since he came into the game. If you look at all relievers since 2008, that's when he broke into the big leagues, although this is equally true for since 2009 and since 2010 and since 2011. He is the fourth most valuable reliever, according to Fangraph's War, after the trinity of Aroldis Chapman, Kenley Jansen, and Craig Kimbrell. Those three guys, obviously the highest profile relievers of this era, flamethrowers and closers. And then you've got David Robertson, number four, who 
does not throw nearly that hard, but the way that he succeeds has always fascinated and impressed me. There's just a, an element of deception there that has served him really well. What I what I did enjoy when I was doing some research, I wrote about Robertson on, on Thursday, and going back to 2002, just using some fangraph stuff, he has the second largest reverse platoon split for any right-handed pitcher. Uh, he uh-huh. has dominated lefties from the very beginning. He's had a He's been better against lefties and righties nearly every single season of his career. By weighted on base average, he has been 50 points more successful against lefties than righties. So it is interesting in in a case like this. The Phillies had been looking for left-handed help all over their pitching staff, and they wound up signing a righty who is basically a lefty reliever. And it's it's fascinating. I agree with you that I think he's... He's been underrated. I thought I remembered some recent season where he wasn't very good, and then I went back through his numbers, and no, turns out he's (laughs) always been pretty good. And uh, I think there was just one year his walks got out of control or something. But it's really interesting because he stayed so good. He's always gotten so many strikeouts, but his style of pitching has changed fairly dramatically. He used to throw about 75 to 80% fastballs, and last season, for the first time in his career, he threw more curveballs than he threw fastballs. It's just a... I think the telltale sign of a real good major leaguer is someone who can stay good for a while as opposed to just being a flash in the pan for a season or two because you have to yeah. be good while making adjustments, and, and Robertson has has done that. Mm-hmm. That's what everyone says about relievers. That's the stereotypical line. They're just flashing the pans, and it's you can't count on them from year to year, and that is often true, which is maybe partly a product of the types of pitchers who become relievers, but also just a product of the small samples, and you throw 60 innings, and you can get a weird BABIP year and look bad, but... He has never had one of those years, and he's been in the big league since 2008 and has always been pretty good and sometimes been extremely good. So I think we should celebrate that sort of consistency. So do you think he did a good job at agenting? Did he represent himself well as two years, 23, with a $12 million club option for a third season in the range that David Robertson deserves? It's not as big as his previous contract, of course, but he was younger then. Yeah, so he it had been reported that he wanted three years, and players usually want more than they end up getting, unless they're Lance Lynn, who was probably as surprised as the rest of us. But at the end of the day, David Robertson is going into his age 34 season. He's older than all of the relievers who recently have gotten three or three-year contracts or longer. And, you know, you can say, well, Joe Kelly got three years and $25 million, and he has a worse record. And, you know, Kelly is three years younger than Robertson is, but also he has that interesting stuff. Robertson doesn't throw 100 miles per hour. And the difference in value of the contract is only $2 million. And there is that club option at the end. So I think Robertson did fairly well. And it is also worth considering, even though it doesn't make a huge difference. But by representing himself, David Robertson does not have to pay an agent commission here. And uh-huh. we don't know exactly what his old agent was asking for, but I think the standard is usually in the vicinity of 5%. And in this case, that's more than a million dollars that David Robertson gets to keep for himself. Although I guess he also doesn't get to keep about half of it because it goes straight to the federal government. But in any <laughs> case, he does get to make more money because he didn't have anyone else do the work for him. Mm-hmm. So this is not really the stupid money that Phillies fans have been hoping the team would spend since their owner said they would do that. But their bullpen looks pretty solid now, I guess, has some interesting arms, the the, the potential to succeed that Whit Merrifield <laughs> thinks the Royals have, that the Phillies actually have some of those guys. I, I guess this is good because poor uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez doesn't have to pitch every single day now. Right. I, I was looking at their bullpen picture earlier today after adding Roberts into their depth chart, and it looks good it's uh it's funny because they were looking for so many lefties but they already had adam morgan as a lefty they acquired james pazos who's a lefty they acquired jose alvarez who's a lefty so they already have lefties but there is a good mix here of righties and lefties pitchers who are good and pitchers who are better than good and one of the things that robertson said in uh whether it was an interview or a press conference i don't know but he said on thursdays that he doesn't really care when he's going to pitch he's not coming in thinking he's going to be the closer he said he just wants to throw basically high leverage innings he wants to make sure that he's pitching in the back of the game but whether it's the sixth seventh eighth or ninth inning it doesn't really matter to him and that is clearly right up gabe kapler in the phillies alley i can't imagine that they lied to him about how he's going to be used but this is a team that's going to have a number of options moving forward and i would expect that robertson and dominguez are going to end up sort of uh tag teaming the closing role and just kind of handling it uh, depending on whether good lefties are coming up or not. 
Mm -hmm. It's impossible to answer this with any certainty, but would you say that the biggest dominoes are likely to fall sometime soon on this free agent market or not sometime soon? It seems like there's just more smoke surrounding Manny Machado than Bryce Harper, and then Harper may drag on for a while, but that Machado may be resolved sooner. It feels like it. I, I, I don't. It's more of a gut feeling than anything else, or just kind of mm-hmm. mentally connecting these things that I've read. But you know, I've seen enough writers who were more sourced saying things like, "Oh, well, Machado should happen somewhere within the next week," and I don't know why that would be true. It doesn't have to be true. We saw, I think, the majority of huge contracts last year were given out in even February yeah. or later. But in yeah. any case, Although I mean, the- last year was was weird and an outlier, but still, yeah, that's true. Yeah, the the two biggest uh, free agents last winter were, I think, you Darvish and JD Martinez, or at least they were at the top of the the lists, the rankings heading into the offseason, and they didn't sign till what mid February. So yeah, it could drag on for a bit. Yeah, something like that. But you know, the the pool of suitors is so small for players of such a magnitude that it does feel like Machado should happen relatively quickly. What happens after that, I don't really know because on the trade market, the Marlins are holding so much up by not yet having traded JT Realmuto. It does feel like Realmuto, Machado, and Harper are kind of like the big fish that are left, and and the other pieces are gonna the the chips are will fall where they may, but. Machado's coming, and uh, I kind of forget, you come back from from sort of slowing down over the holiday, and you come back, and you're like, oh, right, there's still like a lot of action that's left to happen. It's not just the mm-hmm. doldrums that have in the way that we used to think of January and February. There's still like, I don't, I'm not going to, maybe even most of the offseason left to go. <laughs> I haven't like looked at the board of names to move around, but like there is an awful lot, even despite that pre-Christmas flurry of activity on that, that Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. All right, so we have got a guest today, and I am excited about this one because really just the foundation of everything we do on the show and in our writing would not be possible without our guest, who is Dave Smith, who is the founder and main operator steward of RetroSheet, which has just contributed an incalculable amount of knowledge to the the store of all baseball knowledge. And we got a question from a listener named Charles months ago that I don't think we ever answered on the show, but he wanted to know who would be on Sabermetrics Mount Rushmore if you just had, you know, four faces to put on a mountain somewhere. I don't know if anyone has a a spare mountain to devote to Sabermetrics Mount Rushmore, but (laughs) (laughs) obviously you've you know you put bill james on there i I think maybe you put sean foreman on there you definitely put dave smith on there because just every question i mean every stat blast we do every play index everything would not be possible without retrosheet the effort to collect accounts of every game in baseball history which is ongoing and which has made unbelievable progress and as dave will say is uh, almost 95 percent of the way there so i think those three definitely on it i don't know who the fourth is maybe you you smush up dick kramer and pete palmer and, and combine their faces on there since they collaborated a lot or maybe someone more recent like tom tango i don't know there are a lot of sabermetric and research pioneers but RetroSheet is just the foundation of every advance in baseball research that has happened essentially over the last few decades. So I am thrilled that we get to talk to Dave about the origins of that effort and how they have made so much progress and how they are continuing to add to the historical record. Well, I can't follow that introduction with anything better, so why don't we just get right to it? All right, we will be right back with Dave Smith. Everything is free now. That's what they say Everything I ever done Gotta give it away Someone hit the big score They figured it out That we're gonna do it anyway Even All right, so as promised now, we are joined by baseball research royalty, Dave Smith, the founder and steward of RetroSheet. Hello, Dave. Hello. I am very excited to have you on belatedly because RetroSheet has given us and everyone in this community so much over the years, and you are responsible for that or one of the 
people primarily responsible. So I hope that a lot of our listeners are aware of what Retrosheet is and does and how it came to be. But for those who are not, can you give us what I'm sure must be by this point a well-practiced rendition of the origin story and how it actually started? Sure, I can do that. I, I don't mind telling the story, though. I'm always happy about it. Okay. Um, I, could, I could possibly say, this is a little corny, but uh, Retrosheet began on July 18, 1958, uh, when I was 10 years old and I went to my first Dodger game at the L.A. Coliseum, which is a pretty awful place to see a baseball game. And one of the things that happened that day is that my father bought me a Dodger yearbook. And in the back of that yearbook were amazing columns and tables of data, how each Dodger player had done the year before uh, by month uh, with runners in scoring position, uh, all the stuff that we now take for granted. I'd never seen such a thing before. And of course, it turns out that all of that was compiled by Alan Roth, who's like the founder of Sabermetrics, in my opinion. And I looked at that. I'm 10. And I said, well, I'm going to be him when I grow up. That's just all there is to it. <laughs> a lot of little boys did too, but that's pretty much what happened. Now, of course, I didn't really started then. I started collecting baseball scorecards and scoring every game I went to. But RetroSheet really began in the late 80s, after Project Scoresheet died, although I would never say we were a successor to Project Scoresheet. That was a very different sort of thing. But RetroSheet began in 1989, and we decided from the beginning we would be completely volunteer, uh, no money ever changing hands. Everything we ever did would be available for free to anybody, and anyone who volunteered to help us would know that their labor was going for free. So I contacted teams and sports writers and announcers and fans, and we ended up getting thousands and thousands and thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands, of game accounts uh, so that we could then convert them into the appropriate computer format that anybody who's ever seen RetroSheet knows what that format is. So you want more than that? <laughs> that was good. I, I think you mentioned Project Scoresheet, and for people who just aren't that aware of what the research landscape looked like at that time or just how inaccessible everything was. You had Elias Sports Bureau, of course, the official record keepers of baseball. And then for the public, he were just kind of out of luck. You could drag around a, a giant tome of baseball statistics, but it was hard to find things publicly. So can you give us a sense, a quick recap of the Project Scoresheet and Bill James's role in this and just the, the public research and crowdfunding or crowdsourcing efforts to actually compile some of this information. Of course, crowdfunding wasn't a concept then, but that's right. an interesting way to put it. Uh, you're absolutely right about the inaccessibility of any kind of baseball data. The only kind of stuff situational, like uh, what, is your, your, what are your batter's records against left and right-handed pitchers? I mean, that's about as fundamental now as you get. That was impossible to find in 1984. Impossible. You might get something out of a team's media guide, which might have it for a few players, but not every team would have it. Well, Bill James started Project Scoresheet with the 1984 season in one of his abs. He put out a call for volunteers across the country to score games and send them to a central place where they would be computerized and the data would be made available. And he did that, and he did it for a few years, and there was some very significant inner turmoil, and the project basically died. And I, I don't really want to talk much about Project Scoresheet. I'd much rather talk about Retrosheet. What happened with Project Scoresheet is, in my opinion, is that there was money on the table. And a small number of people were making money off the volunteer labor of a large number of people. And oddly enough, the large number of people decided this was a bad thing. And so when Retrosheet came to be uh, in 1989, the very, very first thing we said is we will always be free. We will always be open. Everything that we have will go to anybody. And if you volunteer for us, you know that your work is going to be given away to anybody. And if you don't like that, and that's just fine if you don't like that. If you want to somehow be compensated for your work, you got to go someplace else because we're not going to ever have any money on this. Mm -hmm. And Sherry Nichols, whom I wrote about at The Ringer last year, was one of the figures who was instrumental in setting that course and deciding that RetroSheet would be Sherry was the first vice president of RetroSheet. And she, she, I mean, I, I didn't need any persuading. I knew that the money was a problem, but she was just adamant about the nonprofit status. Actually, I think she coined the term that RetroSheet is not nonprofit, we're anti-profit. I think that's what she said. <laughs> 
So we, we're going over the origin here. And I, if you could just very simply, leaving aside all the internal politics or potential internal politics, just could you walk us through what it was like at the very beginning to just go through the process of data entry for as many games as you got? Because you can imagine when you try to envision what that process would have looked like, it's not very sexy, but clearly a lot has been done, a lot got done. What was the average day in the, uh, the first years of RetroSheet? Well, that's a wonderful question. We, we started slowly, as you might expect. We got some good publicity. Paul White in Baseball Weekly, and then later when he was just working for USA Today, was very favorable about us very, very nicely. And so we got some publicity, and people would call me, and I'd send them our input software and some score sheets, and they could translate the score sheets from you know, the team's notation or you as a fan, however you scored a game, that had to be translated to some sort of standard form, and then that has to be entered into the computer. And depending on what that scorecard or score sheet looked like, that could be half an hour for a game. And then the actual entry of the game into the computer is like 10 minutes, but on round numbers, 45 minutes to an hour per game. And we had over 100,000 games done that way. So do the math on that. And, and it's just terrifying how many people were willing to spend that much time on it. Now, my job has always been as the central coordinator. Um, and, and my great regret, I don't know if it's a regret, a regret, but a reality is that this all has to be centralized. If it doesn't all come to one place, if you don't have all of these accounts in one place, you'll never keep track of it. It can't be piecemeal everywhere. And since I created it, uh, I'm the place. I'm sitting down in my basement now with my 11 file cabinets that are still filled with old score sheets. I'm slowly but surely scanning them to try to clean out the, the uh, file cabinets and make my wife happy. But we had to get these things all processed. And remember, in the early 90s, you didn't just make an attachment to your email to send these things out to people. They were done by U.S. mail. I'd mail it out to people. They'd enter the games. They'd put them on floppy disks. Remember floppy disks? <laughs> and they'd put them on floppy disks and mail them back to me. And then I would massage them and sort them and get them in the right place. It's an incredible amount of time for each game that, to, to get it done. And the fact that there were so many people willing to spend that much time. Uh, you know, There's a few people that did a ton of games. But like Clem Comley did over 15,000 games by himself. <laughs> I, I hesitate to even ask this question because it's already just it grinds the brain to think about doing all of this in the first place. But then anywhere along the line, because it's RetroSheet is responsible for so much of our understanding of the history of baseball statistics now that, that we research that we take for granted. Was there an editorial process, an oversight process just to make sure that there weren't data entry errors or or other? Yep, yep. me. that's a pretty arrogant short answer but it's back to the centralization of course other people helped i mean to say the least people who entered their own own games would do their best to proof it against what was available you know newspaper box scores usa today box scores and so on but the overall data quality comparing them to official numbers that has to be centralized if i have let's take a season uh 1983 which is when we started and we go backwards. We always count backwards. Since Project Score Sheet started in 1984, we started in 1983 and went back. That to get 1983 done, I probably had 50 different people inputting games. And some of them would make syntactical mistakes, and some of them would misread scorecards. And once they all come back to me, they all have to be rationalized, and they all have to be compared to the official statistics, and it has to come out right. I can't have um, 1983. I can't have, uh, oh, who'd be a big, big home run hitter? I can't have... Steve Balboni hitting three extra home runs because our data was in, incorrect. You know, this stuff has to be done right. And I, there was no way not to centralize that. That's a clumsy sentence. But I could never figure out a way to get that last bit of nitty-gritty proofing out of my hands. And in fact, that's still pretty much true. <laughs> we are so accustomed now to having this information. As Jeff said, we do kind of take it for granted. If baseball reference or fan grass is down for five minutes, I get impatient. <laughs> and, and just <laughs> because, bet. yeah, it's it's the old standby. We are all so used to it. Many of our listeners never knew a world where they could not just look up almost anything instantly. Before that was possible, when there was just so much that was unknown, was that a source of constant frustration or was it not really because you just had never known anything different and you just never expected that information to be accessible? That's perfect. I couldn't pine for something I had never imagined. Right. I mean, it, it's that simple. I mean, looking backwards, oh my God, I didn't have all this stuff in 1965. Well, n- nobody ever thought about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I have, this isn't a direct answer to what you've been saying, but I have one, one thing to throw in that 
I've often thought, gee, if only I could have started uh, earlier than this, you know, before I, I got distracted by life and so on. But it wouldn't have been possible because before the mid-'80s, there basically weren't any personal computers. I know there were some apples around in the early 80s and so on. But widespread use of personal computers is a mid to late 80s phenomenon. And it's, it, I always say that the personal computer did not make RetroSheet easier. It made RetroSheet possible because it allowed me to decentralize things as much as I did. I could get things in the hands of lots of people. Lots of people could do this stuff. We didn't all have to sit in the room. We didn't all have to be connected to some big mainframe. They, without the personal computer, none of this would be possible. So out of curiosity, going all, all the way back, as far back as you can, where, where do things currently stand in your, your percentage of games complete? Well, I always like counting from 1901. There's a, a lot of reasons for that. Rule changes and, and the leagues were more or less stable beginning in 1901. From 1901 through 2018, uh, there have been uh, 197,339 games, so just over 197,000 games. And we have play-by-play information for 186,000 of those 197,000, which is 94.4%. Wow. Yeah, that's really amazing. And, and well, it, it, it's absurd. When I started, <laughs> I used to, I said we would maybe one day get like a quarter of the games played since World War II if we're lucky. <laughs> yeah. And th- this is this is beyond imagination. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so clearly there's still quite a bit of progress being made because I emailed you less than a year ago when I was working on that article on Sherry and you were at 93.8% then. So you've right. what, picked up another <laughs> percent of all of the games played since 1901 yep. since then. So well, every percent is a little harder to get, of course. Right, exactly. Yeah, so when you started, and I'll ask how you have continued to make progress, but when you started, what were kind of the biggest treasure troves, the biggest scores that you just landed a, an enormous gold mine at once? Well, that's a wonderful question. The first, one of the very, very biggest ones we ever had was one of our very first ones, and that was the Baltimore Orioles. I presume you know Eddie Epstein. Mm-hmm. And Eddie is a, is a friend. He's also a graduate of the University of Delaware, so I got to know him that way as well. And he was working for the Orioles, and he found out about us, and he talked to their PR people and arranged for me to drive down to Baltimore and pick up all of their scorebooks, each one in a giant three-ring binder from 1954 to 1983. And so Baltimore is about an hour from here. So I went down and picked them up and brought them back, and so I have... Uh, 1954 to 1983, so 40 years worth of, of, of Orioles scorebooks sitting on my, my dining room table. And then I had to copy all of them, because I had to, to Xerox all these things, I had to give the books back, and then I started sending them out to people. So that was such an unbelievable beginning. I mean, right there, frankly, was more than I thought we'd ever get. I couldn't believe that the teams would cooperate, because like a lot of people, I had written to teams asking for data, and they would... Some were polite, some weren't polite, but they'd blow you off and say, no, we don't have it. I, I now understand that they probably didn't have it. It's not that they were trying to be mean with it. They they didn't have it. And so once I, I found out that the Orioles did have this, it was just incredible. And that was, you know, that was fantastic. And then I asked the Orioles if I could drop their name with the Phillies. I live basically halfway between Baltimore and Philadelphia. So I asked if they would put in a good word for me with the Phillies. So they did. And I drove up to Philadelphia and got all of their books. You know, <laughs> it, it becomes word of mouth. Then it went to the Pirates and then it went to Minnesota and it just kept feeding on each other. But that first collection from the Orioles is just always going to be near and dear to my heart. It's not the, not, it's not the biggest thing we have, but it was just an unbelievable start. I'll tell you about our biggest thing in just a minute. <laughs> I, I, I think we kind of glossed over this uh, somewhere earlier, but of course, we all understand that RetroSheet is a website. It is a wonderful resource. It is online. But you started in 1989. I don't remember exactly when the internet uh, began for public use, but I'm pretty sure it was not widespread in 1989. So how? what was, what was RetroSheet's original form then? It was uh, people who heard about us would uh, write to me and ask for uh, game data, and I would put it on a floppy disk and mail it to them. <laughs> yeah. And that happened until 1994, the first time we put anything on a website. Uh-huh. So what was the biggest score? Uh, the biggest score. Alan Roth, you know, the, the saint that I wanted to become when I was 10 years old, the, mm-hmm. the greatest sabermetrician, Dodger saber statistician from 1947 through 1964. He kept... Not only play-by-play, but pitch-by-pitch of every Dodger game for 18 years. Mm -hmm. And when he died, 
his material was collected and given to the Amateur Athletic Foundation of Los Angeles. I think they have a different name now, but the Amateur Athletic Foundation. And I arranged with them. I sweet-talked my way in, into their, their good graces, and I arranged for them to send all of his score sheets to David and Sherry Nichols, because David worked for Xerox at the time in uh, Palo Alto, and they copied all of these. All of these, these It's 2,700 games. So it's not only that it's 2,700 games, they're on they're an amazing format. They're on paper that's like 11 inches by 17 inches. So think about that for a second. I mean, what are you going to do with a stack of 11 by 17 inches? These enormous things. And he color-coded them by opponent. So, for example, all the games against the Giants would be on white paper, but all the games against the Cubs would be on blue paper, and all the games against the Reds would be on red paper. So David and Sherry not only copied all these things, they had to adjust for the different color backgrounds of all the paper, which is really tough for um, the technology, copying technology in the early 90s. You know, thank God David worked for Xerox, and he was using their absolutely state-of-the-art machines to make these incredibly good copies for us. I mean, that's always going to be the center for me, just because I've always been a Dodger person from, from even before I went to the first game, and having Roth stuff and the pitch-by-pitch, pitch, it's just yeah, it's a wild, wildest dream come true, that's all I can say. So I, this is maybe a challenging question, but so you have now addressed the, the greatest trove that you have received, but can you think of like the strangest source, just like the, the most unusual place where you just wound up getting a game that you didn't already have? That's a great question. Uh, there, there's a lot of strange ones. We get a lot off of uh, the Internet even now. There's a guy in Chicago, Joe Stilwell, who scans eBay and the auction websites. And if people are selling scorecards programs for auction, and there are quite a few people that sell old scorecards that came out of their attics or something like that, he gets on and follows that every day, and he will look at their listing. And very often, these people will post scans of the scorecards. And so we download the scans and we get them that way. Now, it, it seems a little bit cheesy, but we're not stealing from them. They're posting the thing up there. So we, we just take all of those. So the strangest one maybe I ever got was we needed one last game from the 1977 Seattle Mariners from their first season. We needed one game because the team's records were only so-so. The nice thing is you can often get the game from the opposing team. So sometimes we have two accounts for a single game, one from each team. Sometimes we only have one. But there's this one game I could not find. Well, I wrote to the Seattle team several times, and they were intrigued. And they got me connected with their radio announcers, and they had me on pregame show uh, one night before Mariners game telling about RetroSheet and how I desperately needed this game. Three days later, I got it in the mail because a fan who had been to every game had scored that game, and she sent it to me. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so at what point did large organizations start coming to you as opposed to you going to them and with your That's hand held out and asking for information and data? At what point did you become the resource that everyone was seeking stuff from you? Well, not about everybody, but it happened pretty early because the Orioles, I did some reports for the Orioles and for the Celtics. But the first real big connection was the Minnesota Twins, of all places, because the Twins somehow found out about us, and they were getting ready for Dave Winfield as he approached his 3,000th hit. And they were going to do a booklet, a, a, a nice magazine-type thing on Winfield's life and career and all that kind of stuff. And they wanted to have a list of all of his base hits, and they couldn't find them. They got some from this team, some from the Padres, of course, some from the Yankees, because Winfield was a twin then. So they contacted me, and I filled in all the blanks. And so the booklet they, they created, which is a beautiful booklet about Winfield, in the margins, they have all these stories, and in the margin down the sides, they list each hit and the inning and the opposing pitcher and the type of hit it was. They got all that stuff from me, well, except the ones they'd come up with themselves. And I got a nice autographed copy of the book, autographed by Winfield, and also an autographed Dave Winfield bat, which I wasn't expecting at all. This thing's the size of a telephone pole, I would like to point out. He's, he's a big man, and this is a really big bat. So that was really the beginning, because that got us a lot of publicity. And then so many of the teams started asking for things. The Dodgers did, because I was always begging the Dodgers and doing anything I could to ingratiate myself with them. I started doing reports for them, and then I did some for the Cardinals, and I did some for the Reds. It just kept going on and on and on. So at this point, do you have to do active recruiting for new volunteers, or are there enough people who come to you that you're just able to pick and choose? That's a great question, too. You're really on top of this. Amazingly enough, I don't do much recruiting. 
partly because I'm so busy with all of the other aspects of this, I don't really have time to you know, put out newsletters or anything like that anymore. I'm not sure how I would recruit. There's so many people that speak nicely of us. I mean, Sean Foreman, besides being a really great guy, runs the most fantastic baseball site in the world, and he gives us credit all over the place. Sabre gives us credit all over the place. So I'm happy to, happy to say, I, I, I guess it's a measure of success, that we are fairly visible. I mean, you've said all these nice things tonight. We're fairly visible, and people do come to me. I don't have to go looking for people anymore, which, if anything, is, is convenient because I'm doing so many other things. We had David Neft on the show in 2017, Mm -hmm. episode 1097, to talk about the Macmillan Baseball Encyclopedia and the research efforts that he had to do to make that. Was that something that was helpful to you, all the scouring of microfilm to find stats and game accounts? Did that transfer over to RetroSheet? Not directly. I know David Neft. We get along real well. But not really. The... Many old newspapers, I, I talked about getting scorebooks from teams and announcers and fans. Many old newspapers also had play-by-play in them. You may or may not be aware of that, especially before World War II. Uh, you could have an evening paper selling for three cents or something like that, and all these are all day games. So you're coming home from work at 6 p.m., and they're on the newsstand for your three cents. You get the evening paper, which has the full play-by-play of that afternoon's game. They had a story, but they listed in, batter by batter, batter by batter of the entire game. We've probably gotten 25,000 games that way off microfilm. I get microfilm through window library alone. One of the, the great perks of my former job, and I'm retired now, have access to interlibrary loan, and I get to have access to these old newspapers, and I can get game accounts that way. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about that also, because sometimes you don't get complete play-by-play, but you get partial, and then you can work out the rest of it. So can you describe the, the process of figuring out what went on in a game when you know some things, but not everything? I call these games deduced games, where we'll say that a the evening newspaper had the first six innings, but they had to go to press early, so they're missing the rest of it. We can look at the newspaper accounts in that city and the opposing city from the next day, and we can come up amazingly accurately on filling in the gaps. We can get we can place with well over ninety percent accuracy every walk, hit, strikeout, double play. What we don't get is detailed fielding credit. I mean, do I wish we had fielding credit? Well, of course. But in the end, if I know this guy made an out, given the level of, of information we have, whether he flied to center or grounded to second is not important enough to keep that game off of our website. So we release these things with a code that shows unknown play. He made an out. We don't know how he did it. So we've got probably... 20,000 games that have been deduced this way, and we've got about eight people right now that are actively doing it, and the greatest achievement is how complete they are. We have recently finished 1936 season, and since we go backwards, that means we now have at least a deduced version for every play of every game from 1936 forward. I understand that it's presumably been shifting over time. You mentioned, for example, the last game in the season for the 1977 Seattle Mariners, but have you had certain white whales? Are you chasing certain games right now where you're just, I mean, I know you try to fill in as many gaps as you can, but certainly there there have to be individual games that capture your attention more than others. You're absolutely right. And that it's sort of funny because every, every game matters. Yes, we want them all. You bet we do. But when there's a hundred games missing for a season, um, well, that's frustrating. When there's one game missing for a season, um, the on our website we have a section called "Most Wanted." Can you yes. help us uh, fill? If you look at 1973, there September is September 29th. <laughs> one Houston game. versus Atlanta. Someone's got to have it. Well. I can't tell you how much time I've spent looking for that game. I've been in both cities. I've been in both parks. I bet you I've talked to 15 sports writers from those two places, from all of the announcers, uh, Pete Van Weeren, who was really helpful. Me, every, It's not that. Now, we have deduced the game. So we have a deduced account of this game on our site. But having a real full play-by-play, uh, <laughs> if it were 10 games, it would be annoying. If it's one game, it's just incredibly infuriating. <laughs> Have you ever relied on like oral history? I mean, I mean do you need a, a written contemporary account? Or if, if there's someone with a, a photographic memory who was in the stands that day and says, I remember exactly what happened, or you just talk to a bunch of players from the game and piece it together, has anything like that ever happened? 
Well, <laughs> the last person, I will say with some respect, the last person you should ever talk to about what happened in the game is a player. <laughs> the very last person. They're never right. Now, Jane Levy wrote this incredible book about Sandy Koufax. Uh, she wrote a good one about Mantle, and she just did one on Babe Ruth. But she wrote a book on Koufax, and I consulted with her very heavily on that. And she, she gave me lots of credit. It was just fantastic. And she has had me track down anecdotes that players had told her. I tracked down 56 different anecdotes. Joe Torrey, what he did the first time he ever faced Koufax. Henry Aaron, what he did on such and such a date. Ron Santo, what he did in Koufax's perfect game. 56 of these. Every one was wrong. Every <laughs> single one. I mean, and the most egregious one, this is just incredible. Mari Wills swears there was a game in the ninth inning. The Dodgers were ahead either five to nothing or six to nothing. There was a runner on third and one out, and a ground ball hit to Wills, and the Dodgers were clearly going to win the game. And Wills threw home to get the guy out of the plate to preserve Koufax's shutout because he loved Koufax so much. He said Roseboro almost dropped because he was so startled. Okay, great story. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> There's nothing that even vaguely resembles that situation. And I looked at every single play a bunch of times. So the, the players were well-meaning. All these stories were good, flattering things about Koufax, but they just weren't true. I, I said all those were wrong. There was one person's account who was correct, and that was Koufax. <laughs> yeah, because that's interesting because occasionally a, a player will really shock you with their recall of, oh, I threw this specific pitch in this situation or yeah. it was, you know, here it, pitchers remember sequences that they threw, batters sometimes remember how a pitcher approached them, but then well, they there think are so. these, these big things. Yeah, th occasionally it's it's true, but yeah, I, I've had the same experience trying to track I, down I had anecdotes to. and I had to really swallow my tongue once. The first time I met Rick Monday was in spring training. He was at the Dodger game, and he was, was with me uh, before the game. And we're, he's talking about what happened in his first All-Star game appearance. And I was, so I looked, oh, God, Rick, that's just not right. That's not what you did, you know. <laughs> but I managed not to say that to him. <laughs> have you made people upset? Like, have you have people resented you as the fact checker? Yeah, there's one person I made very upset. I, <laughs> I, I, I take pride in being a pretty nice guy that most people get along with. Okay, I, I was was really rude to one ex player one time. Should I, can I say who it is? <laughs> sure, <laughs> if, you, yeah. if you'd like to. <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> it's Dale Swaim. Ah. Now, not exactly a major figure, but he was a major league player, a hell of a lot better athlete than me, and I. Before our website was as complete as it is, I used to pre prepare reports for players. For every bat, each batter, I had to give them the details of how he did against each pitcher, and for each pitcher, how he did against each batter, and so on. And most of the players love going over these things. And I'd point out, yeah, you see, you didn't do so well against him. I got a great story about Ron Fairley on that one. But anyway, so I did this for Dale Swain before a game in Washington one night. Uh, David Vincent was with me, and we, uh, he, uh, Swain was, with, was coaching for the Brewers. And we're down in the field, and I gave Swain his detailed report. Yeah, here it is. I hope you like it. And that, that's about it. And Swain looks and he immediately tears through about the middle page. Ha! You only have me hitting one home run off Jack Morris. I, every report I ever see says I only hit one. I know I hit two off him in one game. Now, and he's getting really belligerent about this. And I'm saying, well, you know, if, if everybody has it with one, you know, it's probably, but I didn't say that. I said, well, these have all been checked really, really carefully. Well, I know that. So I did two in one game. And I finally said, well, maybe in batting practice. <laughs> I, I was just disgusted. So our numbers aren't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so where are the accounts coming in? I mean, you're mostly, I, I would think, working backward now into the earlier days of baseball, and that's harder to find. Is all of this coming from people scouring microfilm? Is it coming from people finding things in their attics? How did you get from 93.8% to where you are now? Well, the other thing which has happened is that, that happened in the last 10 years is that the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is run by the Hall of Fame Library, which is run by some incredibly wonderful people. Jim Gates is the head librarian. He's, he's a saint. That they have scorebooks that many, many sports writers, or more accurately, the families of sports writers after they passed, donated. For example, Tom Swope, who's one of the greatest sports writers in, in history that never seems to have disappeared, scored every Cincinnati Red game from 1920 to 1964. 
and the his family donated his score books to the Hall of Fame. And I drove to Cooperstown. I made seven trips to Cooperstown over the last ten years with a camera, and I photograph all these. I photographed about twenty thousand games by doing it that way. And th- that is a major source because these are guys who are sitting in the press box watching the game. It's their job to get it right. Now, of course, they make mistakes, but these are by far the most reliable. And what I found early on is that the accounts from sports writers were really good, partly because as I thought about it later, the writers would refer back to their scorebooks when they're writing their stories for the day. The ones that were terrible were announcers because an announcer is probably not going to go back to the second inning very much. And they had all kinds of mistakes where they just weren't paying very much attention. Is there a particular question that you have been thrilled to be able to answer? I mean, Retrosheet has answered every question that's been answered in the past couple of decades of baseball research. But even if it's not necessarily some advanced study that uncovered some new aspect of the game, but even just a piece of trivia that you always wondered about it, any particular discoveries or ways that you've been able to set the record straight that really stand out in your mind? That's kind of a neat question, too. Not, not really. I mean, I'm... I'm thrilled that so many people reference our, our, our work, that you know, Baseball Research Journal from Sabre comes out every year, and a bunch of the papers there have used our stuff. You go to the Sabre convention, a lot of people reference us as a source. That, that's really wonderful. I don't think, I understand your question, but I don't think there's any, like, oh, my God, I didn't know that, da-da-da-da. I, I don't think mm. that's true. I was going to ask something else, but now I feel like before too much time passes, we have to ask for your Ron Fairley story. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when Sabre was in Seattle in 2006... I got had a press credential from the team, and I got to meet Dave Niehaus, who was their announcer then. He was since passed, of course, and Fairley was his, his color man. And this is when I was still preparing reports for people, and I gave Fairley his report, and he's going crazy. Now, he just loves it. Now, you, you probably know, if you've looked, read Jane Levy's book, that I have an audio tape of the Koufax Perfect Game. Do you know that story? No. Well, let me finish Fairley, then we'll get, well... Well, I'll, be done. I'll digress. You have too many good stories. <laughs> so Koufax was, was my guy. The reason I went to that game in 1958 is that Koufax was pitching. Not many people chose the games they went to in 1958 because Koufax was pitching, okay? I, I was ahead of the curve on that one. The first pitcher-batter matchup I ever saw was two Hall of Famers, Koufax against Richie Ashburn. Uh, Ashburn walked. In fact, Koufax faced six batters that night. He struck out two and walked four, and he was gone. And, and I was, was crushed. And the next day, by the way, Koufax started the same the next night against the Phillies and pitched seven innings. Well, so Koufax had always been my person. And then he becomes a great pitcher. And he's, yeah, this is just unbelievably wonderful good luck. And it turns out that in the early 60s, I was uh, personally keeping score of uh, 25 consecutive Dodger games, an old Peterson score master book. Uh, I would keep 25 consecutive Dodger games at some point during each of, of, of the season. And I, when I went off to college, I stopped doing it. Well, one of those games was the Koufax Perfect Game. And Jane, if you've read Jane's book, you know that she sort of frames her book around the perfect game. She writes a chapter about his childhood, then an inning of the game, then about his childhood, then an inning of the game, and so on back and forth. And she had been doing this, and she found out about me, and she sent it to me to proof, and I did. And I said, oh, and by the way, do you know I have a, a video, an audio tape of the game? And apparently she had a heart attack when she read that. <laughs> Nobody else has it. And Vin Scully recalled this, the KFI radio studios in the ninth inning. He said, you might want to record this. And the Dodgers sold and probably still sell records. It was, it was a 45 RPM record then. I don't know what the format is now of him calling the ninth inning of the Koufax game, but none of the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. And I have the game. I have the whole thing. I actually missed in the first inning. That's another story. I'm missing the first inning. And so I send it to her and she puts in the book. She used it in the book. She's just thrilled beyond belief. And I'm so happy about this. And, I assumed that after her book came out and people read that I was missing the first inning, that people would start coming out of the woodworks. Well, I have that whole game. It's never happened. That book's been out uh, 17 years now, and no one has ever come forward. I apparently really do have the only copy of that game. Now, what is the dumb luck chance that it would be recorded in by me who's going to save all this stuff forever? It, it just, it's just ridiculous. So I, I have the game. I sent it to Jane. I sent a copy. She, she, uh, I gave her an extra copy, and she sent it to Koufax. I gave a copy to Vin Scully. My meeting Vin Scully was pretty wonderful, too. I sent a copy. Or she sent it to Koufax, and I got the next week I got a 
message back, an envelope back from Kofax. And I'm looking at it right now. It's framed and on my wall. An incredibly beautiful picture. It says, to Dave, with very best wishes, Sandy Kofax. And it has a note. Dear David, thanks for the tape. It sure helps to make a person feel young again. Sincerely, Sandy. Well, you know, I just died and went to heaven. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing, nothing better than that. So, yeah. Ron Fairley. <laughs> Fairley played in that game. We're, we're, <laughs> you knew I wouldn't forget. We're, we're, we're back in Seattle. And I'm giving this stuff to Fairley. And we start talking, and he looks at me, and he says, now, at this point, I'm what? I'm 58 years old. But at this point, Fairley looks at me, and he says, you're the kid with the tape. <laughs> I said, yes, yeah, I'm the kid with the tape. Yeah, this is fantastic. And he hugs me, and this is what, because Fairley and Emily played in that game. The Dodgers only scored one run, which you probably know. Uh, Lou Johnson walked, fairly sacrificed him to second. Johnson stole third and scored when the throw to third base went into left field. So fairly was in that game, bunting, making sacrifice. And so I listened to that tape, and they got the play wrong. That's not the way the play went. <laughs> yeah, Ron, it probably is. I don't think Vinny missed it on that one. So the story that he told me, that was all wonderful. And he's looking through all the stuff, and apparently he could not hit Bob Veal to save his life. Now, Fairley was a left-handed hitter. Bob Veal was an intimidating left-handed pitcher, you know, 6'6", 250, whatever. He's just a huge guy. I'm sure you remember that. And Fairley could not hit Veal. And so I gave him this stuff. He looks, I don't remember the numbers, but you look, look across there and his record, you know, like 12 at-bats with nine strikeouts or something, something really awful. And he said when he was playing for Montreal, one night they were going to play Pittsburgh the next day, and Gene Mock is Montreal manager. Said Fairley, go out and get drunk tonight. You're not going to play against Veal tomorrow. I'm just not going to let you let, let you see him. I'm not going to do that to you. So Fairley goes out and he got just blitzed. He says the next day they're ready to play, and whoever it was that was going to play in his place, the right-handed batter that was going to play in his place, hit himself in the mouth with a foul ball during batting practice. Blood all over the place. So Fairley's in there. Fairley's in there. Three sheets to the wind, hung over. He looks out to the mound, comes from the first thing, looks out to the mound. He can barely see where Veal is. He says, I'm just going to take three pitches and go sit down, hope he doesn't kill me. And so he says, the first pitch comes inside, and I try to lean back and hits off the end of the bat, off the, the knob end of the bat and falls. And Veal looks in, are you okay? And Fairley said, he was so good I couldn't even take a pitch off him. Which <laughs> 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 uh, I loved. <laughs> yeah. So you said when you started, you didn't expect to get anywhere close to where you are now. So having gotten to where you are now, what are your expectations now? Do you expect completion at some point in the future? Oh, that's a sad question. I've been asked that many times. I'm and sure. the answer has to be no. By completion, meaning a fully authentic, reliable play-by-play account for every game? No. If we mean deduced games, yeah, we'll deduce them all. I mean, it will take a while, and some of the deductions will be of better quality than others. Let's be honest about all of this. But actually, having real play-by-play accounts of every game, that, that's not going to happen. There's just, there's just too many games played between the St. Louis Browns and Washington Senators in 1912 that nobody really cared about. You know, just, we're not going to find all of those. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the value, I, I suppose, of collecting games that no one saw more than a century ago? I mean, certainly we want to collect them all, but are there still discoveries being made, advances that can come from that old data? Of course, once you get a giant library as you have, then you get such an enormous sample that you can do any analysis you want really right. with what we already have. So adding to it is great for completionists, but I suppose in terms of being able to break new ground, that pace has probably slowed. Well, the new ground, I think you're absolutely right. But you know, adding, even if it is adding two more decimal points after what we already know, ha- having the extra information I still think is valuable. I make a research presentation at Sabre every year and use our data to do it. And uh, it, it's incredible. I, like, I did a, a real good thing, I think, on re, um, relief pictures. I won, won the Breast Presentation Award for it. I did that three years ago on relief pictures. And let's talk about the use of the closer. Well, you want, how much do you want to look? Well, I'm going to look at 100 years worth of data and see how things have changed. You know? So what it means is that the conclusions we reach are that much sounder, even if they aren't groundbreakingly new, they're really much more supported because they got so much behind them. Then, and I find that to be, be a, a really, really valuable thing. So when, when I started this, I had one vision in mind, which was, wouldn't it be neat to use modern sabermetric analyses, Bill James stuff, 
wouldn't it be great to use sabermetric analysis with old players? Like, how did Duke Snyder do against left-handed pitchers? It turns out he was every bit as bad as everybody said he was. What was Babe Ruth's left-right split? Turns out he didn't have much. He had everybody. But we didn't know any of these things, of course. So I started with the idea of using modern analytical techniques on old games. Wouldn't that be fun? But then I sort of morphed into, well, you know, the historical record itself, just to have it around so people can see it. That's what museums are for. I don't mind seeing us as a museum. Sherry Nichols always called us a library. The stuff is there for people to take. I think that's a fantastic image, too, and I always like that. But the other comparison I started using early on, it's like collecting baseball cards. The great thing about this is it's a finite set. Now, it's a hell of a lot of games, but it's not an infinite number. There is an endpoint. You want when you're collecting your baseball cards, you want that last card, even if it's you know Rocky Bridges or something. If you want that last one to complete the set, I want that last 1973 game to p- complete the set. That drives me as much as anything else is completing the set. So understanding that so much of the priority has always been working backwards and trying to get as many games from the beginning as possible. Of course. All current data is available from new games, games from 2018. It's all out there for everybody in incredible detail. What, How streamlined is the process of just inputting data from MLB? Does, do you even need a, a human to look at it, or does it just get put directly in the database? It's not automatic. I have written a program that takes the MLB data and converts it to our format, because, of course, they don't do it in our format. They do it in their format. And it, it takes me about an hour to an hour hour and 15 minutes every morning during the baseball season to do all of the previous day's games. So there are 15 games the day before, you know, nice full day. I, in about an hour or so, I can have them in our format. And I, I do that every day. So that, that's another, you know, completing the settle. It's a lot easier. The, now, the programming to do that was a non-trivial thing. It took me a long time to get that, those programs running properly, and they always get tweaked. But it, it, uh, it works. Yeah. You were a a professor of biology for decades throughout this entire time that we are talking about. How did you. Yeah, for 40 years I was a biology professor. Yeah. How did you juggle this full time job of collecting every baseball game with your actual full time job? Well, it helps to have a wife who's a saint, okay? (laughs) And uh, she's a baseball fan too. She's not insane, but like me, but she's a baseball (laughs) fan. And. Not only does it take an amazing amount of time, and you know the old joke, she knows where I am. I'm down in the basement. But the other thing is that um, it costs money. I mean, I was spending my own money on. When I say there's no money, it means there's no money coming in. It didn't mean we weren't spending money. It was mostly me spending it. And so we'd have phone bills, of course, and lots of postage bills and all that. And early on, she said, "Well, your hobby is supposed to cost you money." I mean, that, that's just the most wonderful, supportive thing in the world. Now, I would say that during the time I worked, I've been retired five years now. During the time I worked, I probably spent about 30 hours a week on RetroSheet, which is squeezing it in there because I'm you know, teaching lots of classes at the same time. Since I retired, I'm probably spending 60 hours a week on RetroSheet, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day on, on doing this. So I've gone from having a full-time job at the university to having a full-time job here. And it's obviously a wonderful thing, but it's, it's my choice. I get to, get to be doing all of this. What are we currently interrupting? Are you in the middle of inputting something that we are delaying you doing? No, no, no. Well, actually, when you called, I was uh, working on inputting one of the games that one of our volunteers has deduced, a a 1935 game, because that's the season we're back to, that he recently deduced, and he sent me an email attachment, a a Word document, and I've been inputting it um, into our format, and so they'll have that all processed real soon. So that, that, that goes on every day. I get a few of those things. So I remember there was something I, I wanted to ask and forgot to until now. You said RetroSheet kicked off in 1989, and anyone who's ever used the play index or looked for this information on baseball reference would understand that pitch-by-pitch information is available going back to 1988. What is it that was special about 1988? That's when Project Scoresheet started collecting pitch data. And that's a good answer. So It's <laughs> that simple. That's simple and direct. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So if our listeners want to help and want to get involved, if anyone listening happens to be at an Astros-Braves game on September 29th, 1973, and wrote down exactly what happened, please let Dave know. But if not, how else can they potentially help? We don't need a lot more volunteers because what we're left with, these deduced games, is really tough. 
I'll be real honest about that. This is not for the faint-hearted. A lot of people have tried and said, God, I just can't do this. Well, that's fine. I totally understand that. It's a hard thing to do. And some of the people I have that are working on that are much better at it than I am. I thought I was pretty good. But Tom Tress who, in Chicago, who is the RetroSheet treasurer now, is just fantastic. And Rob Wood, I presume you know Rob Wood. Rob has been doing deductions too, and he is incredibly careful about this. It's, it's kind of stunning. So there aren't many volunteer opportunities. What I've tried over the years is to get people to go to libraries and get interlibrary loan and get old microfilm. It turns out that's a hard thing to do. A lot of people don't really have access to that. You have to pay to get the microfilm and all that kind of stuff. So it's not a very easy thing for most people to do. And that's one of the perks I had as a university professor is I get free interlibrary loan, which I still do even though I'm retired. With emeritus status, I get full library privileges, which is nice, and I can still have access to that. But mm-hmm. people, we really don't need any more volunteers, which is a stupid thing to say. Of course, we always need <laughs> volunteers. But what's left to do is the really, really hard stuff. Uh-huh. I see. All right. So last question, I suppose. I mean, what you have collected here has to be one of the just most voluminous data sets on any human hobby in history, <laughs> I think. I mean, baseball is just the, the most obsessively chronicled human endeavor there is or at least yeah. among the, the the fairly frivolous ones at least on the surface but why do you think it is that baseball draws people like you people in the sciences why we care so much about every yeah. last detail I, Jeff and I certainly feel the same way about wanting to uncover all these things we had a, an email that we answered yesterday on the show thanks to Dan Hirsch at Baseball Reference someone yep. asked whether there had ever been an alphabetical batting order, whether all Ooh, of the, like the last names. Yeah, good question. It turns out it has only happened once in recorded baseball history, at least until you extend the record further back. It happened in one game in 1934, and that's the only time that all of the surnames in a batting order were in alphabetical order, which is uh, completely inconsequential and meaningless, well, <laughs> but but also but cool. really cool. <laughs> yeah, great to know. I, I was very excited to learn that. So uh, what is it about baseball that draws us in this way, do you think? Why do we appreciate the sport the way that we do? Well, that's interesting. I've always thought, you know, since football has risen so much in popularity over my lifetime, what are the main differences between baseball and football? And part of it is Almost everybody played baseball or something like baseball at some level, you know, gym class in, in high school and stuff like that. But not very many people ever played football at any serious level. So I think people have a more personal connection to baseball than to football. They can, they can imagine it. But it's also true, baseball hasn't really changed. I mean, um, as I like to say, second base hasn't moved in 150 years. But if you went back to a game in 1920 and looked at it, you'd understand everything that was going on. And if you brought somebody from there and to, to now, they would know everything that was going on, too. If you take somebody from 1920 and drop them into an NFL stadium now, he would have no idea what they were doing out there. So I think it's the constancy of baseball. and The, the stability has, is a large part of its attraction. And it's also so daily. You know, it's the everyday you know, football the first half of the week, you're, you're tearing your guts out over last week's game, and the next half of the last half of the week, you're tearing your guts out over next week's game. Baseball, you got to get over and move on. We got another game tomorrow, and I think all those things help help to make it more attractive. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you and have you on, and just thanks so much for all the work that you've done and continue to do. I doubt that Jeff and I would be in this line of work if not for you or if so nice were, to say that. I don't know what we would be writing or talking about. We would just have exhausted <laughs> all the, the possible topics. So thanks so much. It's just an incredible contribution that you have made to the game. Well, you're welcome. And to say it's a labor of love is a complete understatement. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you very much, Dave. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Dave, and I have a great appreciation for what he's accomplished because one of my earliest jobs was working at the Elias Sports Bureau. I think I spent one summer and two winters at Elias, and all I did was go through a bunch of microfilm from the Hall of Fame, just daily records of many, many players' seasons, their at-bats, their hits, what they did each day, and then just very tediously and laboriously input each of those records into Elias's computer system and finish a player, make sure all his totals added up, eventually 
get through an entire season and make sure all the totals added up and of course they never did and then you had to go back and figure out where you screwed up. Extremely monotonous task and that was pre-podcasts so it wasn't as easy not to be bored. Sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat after dreaming that I'm still staring at Jim Constanti's game logs from 1950. Did a lot of data entry before I attained this glamorous post of podcast co-host. Anyway, that was just a taste of Retrosheet's Herculean task. You know, one more note on Robertson. Back in August, I think it was, listener Dan emailed us about some unusual contract incentives that David Robertson had in his last deal. He had a gold glove incentive, an MVP and Cy Young incentive. We talked about what he'd actually do to have to earn that money. Well, he may be representing himself now, but he is still negotiating unlikely incentives, as Dan emails us to point out again. John Heyman reported that Robertson gets 50000 for an all-star appearance. Okay, that's not unlikely. 50000 for a gold glove. 50000 for LCS MVP. 50000 for Silver Slugger. If David Robertson wins the Silver Slugger, I will be somewhat surprised. 100000 for World Series MVP. 100000 for Cy Young, with 50 k for second place and 25 k for third place. Some pretty far-fetched incentives there. But hey, why not? He's also apparently donating 1% of his salary to a club charity, so that's nice. And one other quick note, you recall when we had Cubs minor leaguer Connor Myers, the UPS delivery driver, on the podcast recently. He was talking about the Cubs' mental skills program and how helpful it's been for him. Well, the Cubs just hired another mental skills coordinator, and it's Bob Tewksbury, former MLB pitcher and former Effectively Wild guest. So if you're a Cubs fan wondering what your team just got in Bob Tewksbury, check out episode 1205 for that interview about sports psychology, as well as Bob throwing EFIS pitches to Mark McGuire in 1998. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. I want to give a special salute to Effectively Wild listener Zach Wentkos. He's the one who conceived and conducted this year's Effectively Wild Secret Santa. And not only that, but he made a video montage of every gift that was given and posted in the Facebook group. I will link to that, even if you did not get in on Secret Santa. It is pretty fun to watch all of the gifts. A lot of care and thought went into them. Some really cool items were exchanged. I'm hoping that this becomes an annual tradition and that after it went so well the first time, it becomes even bigger next time. So thank you to Zach. It was really cool that he came up with that idea, and I think it really brought the Effectively Wild community together. The following five members of that community have pledged to support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, John Foster, Ryan Viano, Russ and Adam Goldstein, AJ Schreier, and Luis Torres. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Your ratings and reviews are appreciated. Help us rise up the rankings and attract new listeners. Please also send your questions and comments to me and Jeff via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Just wanna be making